Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, I'm thrilled to have Sarah B. on the show as my 44th interview in this podcast series. Like many women I've interviewed for this podcast, Sarah's journey from active alcoholism to sustained sobriety has been fraught with challenges that lots of alcoholics frankly don't survive. When she started drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana during her early teenage years, she fit in with those around her who were similarly engaged. She excelled in both high school and college while drinking and using, rapidly becoming a functional alcoholic who drank and blacked out quite often. But as her motivation for drinking morphed from social enjoyment to isolated self-medication, Sarah's trip to the depths of alcoholism was gaining speed. Getting pregnant during her senior year in college yielded a baby and a short-lived marriage, both of which got in the way of her drinking and drug use. Though ashamed of her somewhat neglectful care of her baby, in deference to getting drunk, Sarah found herself facing a divorce decree that threatened her entitlement to raise her own child. With her ex getting primary custody of their child, Sarah did not stop drinking or using during her split custody time with her son, nor did she quit when the court ordered her to do so. Family pleas also landed on Sarah's deaf ears. Finally, by the time her son was eight years old, Sarah had had enough, and her moment of clarity came amidst a bleak outlook for her future. She entered AA in 2014 and has been sober since. The rest of Sarah's story is one of hard work in AA, led by a good sponsor who guided her through the steps and helped her position herself in the middle of the program. Sponsorship of other women and a variety of service work, combined with a strong spiritual connection, allowed her to build a healthy relationship with her son and a good working relationship with her ex-husband, who, incidentally, is in the program too. As you listen to Sarah's story, I think you'll find similarities with which to identify. So whether you're driving, walking the dog, exercising, or multitasking in any sober endeavor, please enjoy the next hour with my good friend and AA sister, Sarah B. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Sarah. I'm so glad that you could do this today. I hadn't seen you until the meeting we were in about a month ago for at least a year and a half, two years during this whole COVID thing. Yeah, that was my first time back to after COVID. Yeah, isn't that amazing? How did you make it through the tough times with COVID-19? I just did Zoom meetings, uh -huh. but honestly, my meeting attendance fell off. I didn't really care for meetings via Zoom as much as I liked them in person. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't attending as often, but thankfully I have enough sobriety that I was able to maintain it throughout that time, mm -hmm. but it was definitely a challenge for sure. Yeah, it was a struggle for a lot of people. And what I'm seeing now is that some of the people who you would have thought would go back to meetings right away are still just on Zoom. Either they become very, very comfortable with that format or they are not yet ready to go back to live meetings. How do you feel about live meetings at this point? I'm starting to see people wear masks in meetings again. Yeah. And um I just love how AA doesn't dictate what people need to do with their own personal health and their bodies. For me, it's been really great to be back in person. Yeah, that's the way I feel about it. I went to a live meeting today at noon. You mentioned um, with, with the years of sobriety that you have, how long have you been sober now? I've been sober for seven years. What's your sobriety date? 624-14. Was that the first time that you attempted to get sober or have you had other goes at it? No, I've had other goes, um, but I would say that this time was the first time that I wasn't being requested to get sober uh -huh. or forced to get sober because of court systems or um, the request of a family member. Yeah, It was because I 100% knew that if I didn't quit drinking, I would die. Yeah, And so I got to a meeting and have maintained that continuous sobriety ever since. Well, congratulations on that. Seven years is a long time. Thank you. So when you first attempted to get sober, what were the circumstances over that? And, and did you work an AA program initially or how did you handle that? No, I've never really worked an AA program until getting sober this last time. 
Now there have been times when I've been court ordered to attend a few AA meetings, Yeah, but um, I would go in and really just kind of think, well, this is for them. It's not for me. Mm -hmm. I don't need this. I just wasn't ready yet. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So when you're ready, you're ready. Exactly. Yeah. And we see people all the time coming in with the papers from the courts to get signed. And sometimes people are attentive, but it's not unusual to look over at the people with the papers and they're doing whatever they're doing on their phones and they're just there to get their paper signed. That's true. There's not a personal motivation to get sober. And I think that personal motivation is a huge part of one actually being able to maintain long-term sobriety. Yeah. That desire is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. It's the only thing we can't give people, right? Exactly. As much as we would love to sometimes. The people that come in with their with their papers to get signed by the courts, you know, you just really hope and pray that like they hear something that sticks and a seed is planted. Yeah. But so often once their papers signed, we just don't see them again. And that makes me really sad. Yeah. So I wish they would stick around. Yeah. I feel that way in meetings when People come from the halfway houses and the sober houses to see them in meetings for a period of time and then not see them afterwards. And sometimes it's because they're from out of out of the city or out of the state. Sometimes it's because they don't live conveniently close or they don't have transportation. But it's always heartening to see one or two people still continue to show up in a meeting that they become a part of just by virtue of going to it for six or nine months while they were in a in a halfway house. Yeah. You mentioned the reasons you got sober the other times before AA were either being forced to by the courts or by relatives and family. Uh, could you unpack that a little bit? What happened that you had to stop drinking? When I was 20 years old, I got a DWI in college mm -hmm. and I was court ordered to attend some AA meetings. It was not my first time being arrested. I've actually been arrested three times. Mm. Um, but it was my third time and the courts were like, okay, you know, something's got to give here. Mm. And they ordered me to go to AA meetings and I didn't take it seriously at all. Mm -hmm. Again, it was just something that I was forced to do that the courts were telling me I needed to do. Mm. Another time that I quit drinking for a while was during my marriage. My ex-husband and I would have horrible fights when we were using and uh, in an attempt to try and save my marriage, um, I definitely would try to stop drinking. But I remember thinking specifically when I was pregnant with our son, I stopped drinking. And I remember after he was born thinking, well, I must not be an alcoholic because I was able to stop drinking hmm. while I was pregnant. Mm hmm. And the ironic thing about that is that in and of itself is an alcoholic <laughs> thought. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> right? That makes sense. So if you're thinking, if you're like patting yourself on the back because you're able to maintain a period of sobriety while creating a life, right? that might be an indication that you may want to look in a little deeper. Uh -huh. And then the third time that I really tried to stay sober was when that ex-husband and I, we were going through court mm -hmm. fighting over custody of our child. And the judge took one look at our case and was like, I think that you have a problem with addiction. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get this taken care of, I'm going to take the child away from you and put him into foster care. Oh no! That was probably my biggest wake up call ever, but I still was not able to quit hmm. drinking. Um, I just started doing everything that my attorney recommended mm. I do. So I saw a licensed chemical dependency counselor. I started going to AA meetings and getting the paper signed. Yeah. I enrolled in a parent class. Like I did all of those things. But even though the courts were auditing all of my bank statements and credit card statements, uh -huh. I still would figure out ways to like essentially steal money from myself so that I would always have a stash to buy alcohol. And, you know, like I would go to HEB and get groceries, but like take out extra cash so that I could always kind of have like this, this stash of money huh. that would, you know, fund my alcohol without a paper trail. That one was probably the most impactful period of trying to get sober and not being able to stay sober mm -hmm. because it was actually after all of that, that I did end up getting sober and staying yeah. sober. But what's interesting is that the court case was over. 
my attorneys weren't recommending me to do anything. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't being audited anymore by the courts. I had a spiritual experience where I heard the voice of what I believe is God yeah. tell me you will die if you keep drinking. Hmm. And it was very clear and very concise and like stern, but loving at the same Mm. time. And it was enough to make me stop just hearing this, this voice one, one morning while I was in front of my refrigerator, hung over searching for something to drink. And that following Tuesday, I went to AA for the first time, picked up a desired chip Mm -hmm. on my own without being told to go or court ordered to go. Uh And I have maintained continuous sobriety ever since that moment. That's amazing. It's really great the way that story unfolds because it's the classic get into trouble because of drinking, get out of trouble, get into trouble because of drinking, get out of trouble. When you were first getting in trouble, the first of the, those were all DWIs? No, um, but they were all alcohol related incidences. Yeah. So what did you tell yourself after those occurrences, especially after the DWI? Did you see a connection between the fact that you had been drinking and that you got arrested or was it just bad luck? What, what happened? Yeah, I really didn't see that connection. I thought that it was bad luck mm-hmm. that, you know, somehow these things just keep happening to me. I played the victim card quite a bit. And either fortunately or unfortunately for me, you can look at it a few different ways. Mm-hmm. I was a pretty high functioning alcoholic. And so when I was in college and getting arrested all these times, I also was, you know, a student with above a 3.0 GPA, uh-huh. keeping all of my scholarships. And so, yeah, I was getting arrested, but I also volunteered with the Boys and Girls Club. <laughs> so like people, you know, they didn't really look at these arrests like a problem. They just thought, wow, this is just her living out those wild college years. Uh-huh. So there was a lot of enabling too in my family, mm-hmm. not in a way to be harmful mm-hmm. by any means, I think that genuinely they thought, well, Sarah's going to be okay. Look at how great she's doing in every other aspect of life. Like, this is just one minor setback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't really hit me that I had a problem. I think that I probably, for the first time, thought I had a problem after my son was born. Mm -hmm. So I was in college, met his dad, and then literally two months after graduating from college, I found out that I was expecting my son. Mm -hmm. And we were not prepared to have a baby. I was in no way, shape or form ready, but ready or not, here he comes. And so the first time that I went out after having my son, he was probably about six weeks old. I go out for a night on the town with my girlfriends Mm -hmm. and it's just a complete cluster. Like I end up losing my purse and my Mm. phone And we ended up in a taxi and like the taxi driver didn't really speak English and couldn't tell us like we couldn't tell him how to get us home. And we were driving all over the city and it was just a freaking nightmare. And I ended up getting home at like five in the morning Mm -hmm. and then had the absolute worst hangover because my body hadn't had alcohol in it in so long. Mm -hmm. And yet I went out and drank like I had been, you know, drinking the day Mm -hmm. before And so it was just really, really rough. And I remember thinking like, this doesn't seem right. I'm a mother now. Like I shouldn't be acting like this anymore. Mm -hmm. But once Jack was born and once I started my career, Mm -hmm. I wasn't drinking as frequently as I did in college, but I still was drinking very alcoholically. So if I would put one drink into my body, there was no such thing as moderation. There was no such thing as having a glass of wine with dinner. Yeah. If I was going to have a glass of wine with dinner, that would end up being multiple glasses, probably a couple of bottles of wine, maybe throw in some shots at some point until point of blackout. And that was just how I drank. It was never Uh normal. It was, I blacked out all the time. Was that a throwback to earlier years? When do you remember first having a drink and first wanting a drink? Well, I had my first drink when I was 11, so I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. And I would say that by the time I was 13, I was really drinking alcoholically, Mm -hmm. mostly on the weekends. 
Was that with friends or by yourself? With friends. Was it the social thing to do or did you actually crave the, uh, the alcohol in addition to whatever else was going on socially? You know, it's hard to say. Um, it definitely was social, but I also surrounded myself with the kids who were partaking in those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Like not every kid was, especially as young as I was starting. You know, I was in the sixth grade when I had my first drink. Mm-hmm. So by like seventh, eighth grade, most kids are not drinking by then. But I would somehow seek out the other kids who liked the same things that I did so that I, you know, kind of made it feel like, I was okay and justify my behavior. So you you would land with whatever group would continue to support your desire to keep drinking. Exactly. What were the years in, I guess that's junior high or middle school through high school like? Did that ramp up and were you continuing to hang with the same kind of crowd? Absolutely. And I would say that by high school, there were more drugs coming into play as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a daily pot smoker. I would engage in recreational drug use, cocaine on occasion, mm-hmm. ecstasy, mushrooms, mm-hmm. acid. But again, being this like sort of high functioning mm-hmm. addict and alcoholic, mm-hmm. I was still performing really well in school. I was still in like lots of clubs and I wasn't, I wasn't labeled as a junkie sure. at all. Uh, I would say that I was more popular, but people definitely also knew that I mm. used. So certain crowds would like stay away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had probably a reputation for being a little on the wilder mm. side. So the people that you were hanging with, even though you were a functional alcoholic, certainly that's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, sometimes I think if I wasn't such a functional alcoholic, I probably would have gotten sober sooner. But the fact that I could function while drunk and while high were absolute evidence to me that I didn't have a problem. Look at how well I'm doing in school. Look at how well I'm doing in my job. And, you know, so sometimes when I hear people with the real crash and burn stories, like things were going really well and then they started drinking, use drugs and the, the, everything caved in, I'm almost a little bit uh, envious because mine was, even at the end, I was still performing, although things were not going that well with the performance. So you did that through high school too? Were you... Uh, uh, functional and getting your work done and still partying. Exactly. Yeah. So my, I would really just binge drink mm-hmm. on the weekends in high school, but I was a daily pot smoker. I was too. I, I, in fact, I can't remember a day from the time I started smoking pot till I stopped that I didn't smoke at least once a day. So what was going on within your, uh, within your family during this time that you were drinking and smoking in high school? Were you ever found out or did you ever have consequences with the drinking and, and use of drugs in high school? There weren't consequences because my parents allowed me to do it. Really? Yeah. So um, I think that their viewpoint was, if you're going to do it, let us know, be safe, And we would rather you tell us and be honest than try to lie about it and be sneaky. Yeah. So your folks were, not only were they tolerant, but they were of the belief that they'd rather have you doing these things in a way that they knew about, but knew that you were still safe as opposed to you having to hide it constantly. Exactly. So you went from high school, you went straight into college after high school? I did. What kind of grades had you gotten in in high school and did they help you get into the college you wanted to get into? Yeah, I did. I mean, I I actually got a full ride to college. I had amazing grades. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the University of Arkansas. So you you lived in a dorm or off campus? My freshman year, I lived in a dorm and then I moved into an apartment off Mm. campus. So what was your use of alcohol and your drug use like during your college years? In college, I was more of a daily drinker. Uh That was when I started drinking alone some as well. Uh I I just had more access to alcohol, I guess. Um, I grew up in a small town and the nearest liquor store was like 30 minutes away because it was in a dry county. Uh I don't know if they have dry counties in Texas, but in Arkansas... They have dry and wet counties. So a dry county means that they don't sell alcohol anywhere in the county. Sure. 
but somehow a good alcoholic is still going to uh-huh. sniff it out. Don't even worry. <laughs> yeah. So I was living in a place that wasn't a dry mm-hmm. county. I had a fake ID. So I had like this access, this unprecedented access to alcohol. And, you know, in college towns will have bars with like daily specials. So, oh yeah, you know, two for Tuesday, women Wednesday, thirsty Thursday. Like there was always some sort of a special. So I'm also Uh pretty thrifty, especially in college. I like waited tables to help, um, offset the Uh cost. So I wasn't exactly rolling in the dough. Yeah. I would just always find reasons to justify my drinking. And so if there was a great deal, boom, there was a reason to justify drinking on a Tuesday. I I was the same way. You know, I, I love the happy hours. Uh, in fact, one of my classes in college, the professor actually held class at a bar downtown, and he called it seminar. And we would go and we would discuss whatever it would be that he would have otherwise discussed in class. But he'd buy these big pitchers of margaritas, and everybody was getting slammed uh, at the table. And we all made out with A's. I mean, there was no doubt about that. The only way you didn't get an A is if you didn't drink. <laughs> people I've had on the show have talked about accessibility to pot and pills and other things being actually easier than access to uh, alcohol, which is why they did drugs when they could and did alcohol later when they were old enough. But yours is kind of the other way around, isn't it? Oh, I was just going to say in the small town where I lived, um, there wasn't a ton of access to drugs, but like when something like a drug dealer would move to town and like sell ecstasy, for example, and just have a bunch of pills, then like everybody would do oh, it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so there would be like this like ecstasy phase. Or one summer they found um a farm where the there were mushrooms growing out of the cow uh-huh. patties. And so that summer like everybody did <laughs> mushrooms. Like so or like someone would go to Colorado and get the good oh, yeah. weed, right? The air quote yeah. good weed and bring it back. And then everyone would be smoking kind of things did make their way to the town, but there wasn't like this constant accessibility of drugs. I've never seen heroin or known someone really to do heroin. And I thank God for that because I'm sure I would have tried that and loved Mm -hmm. it too. But where I lived, it just wasn't even available. I get that. So while you were in college, you were drinking more and also drinking more alone than you had been uh, up to that point. But you were getting good grades all along and doing all right functionally. Yeah, I had to keep a 3.0 GPA to maintain my scholarships Uh and 15 hours. So, yeah, I managed to do that while continuing to Uh drink. I remember this one time that Fayetteville is in the mountains I mean, small mountains, Mm -hmm. but mountains nevertheless. And it would snow there on occasion. And so there was this one night when it had started snowing and we all banked on the fact that there wouldn't be school the following day. And so, of course, we had Mm -hmm. a party. So my friends and I all party, get pretty messed up at the house. And then next morning, wake up and guess what? School was still in session. So I had to jump into my car and haul back to campus. And I actually had a test that day and I was late for the test and it was in a speech class. Uh I have a communications degree. So I had to actually present a speech. So I roll in still drunk from the night before, still in my clothes from the night before and gave this speech and still managed to get an A in the class. (laughs) So (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's the kind of high functioning, just hot mess alcoholic that I was. Yeah, it did me no favors because you know the consequences. I could always justify them away. Like with the arrest, it's like, oh well, this is just what happens in college, and I just got caught. Or with my divorce, oh well, he was the jerk. You know, like with wrecking my car like mm-hmm. no that just happened sometimes like the road was windy like n- i never 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 took mm-hmm. personal responsibility for my actions and so even though i had a ton of consequences it was all it was as though they were inconsequential so the consequences being mild as they were did nothing to discourage you from that kind of behavior no no, I would always justify it somehow. You mentioned earlier about blackouts. Um, 
Did you black out when you were drinking in college? And, and what effect did that have on your, your day-to-day life while you were there? So I didn't realize that blackouts uh-huh. weren't a normal part of drinking. Um, I just assumed that everybody blacked out when they drank mm-hmm. because it was all that I'd ever known. I've been blacking out since mm-hmm. I was probably 12. So it wasn't like an abnormal mm-hmm. or scary thing to me. In fact, we used to joke about it. Um, this was back in the day when you would have disposable cameras mm-hmm. and then you'd have to go get your disposable camera, the pictures printed out at like Walmart or something. And I used to just wait in that little one hour photo area and I couldn't wait to see what the pictures looked like so that I could oh, no. help piece the night together. <laughs> now that's blacking out sister. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I, actually, here's another story about me blacking out when I got married. My friends at my bachelorette party, they played a game where they told two stories. One of them was Mm -hmm. true and one of them was false about me. And I had to guess which story was true. And I got so many of them wrong. So stories about myself, like I just, I just didn't remember. And of course, when I got it wrong, I took a shot. So that was great. They were blackout stories that caused you to not remember them, for which you were required to take another shot so that you would black out the next day. Shot. <laughs> blackout again. Exactly. Boy, if that's not a vicious cycle, I just sure as heck don't know it. what right? is. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, you got through the four years of college okay? I did. I graduated in four years. I managed to maintain the scholarships mm-hmm. and all of the hours that I needed, which just kind of helped justify my drinking. Because right, if I had a problem, how could I do that? Yeah, how could you do that? Again, being a functional alcoholic, getting in the way of reality. Exactly. Did you get pregnant in college or or you met the man who was going to be your husband in college? I, I couldn't quite follow that. I met him uh, junior year of college. Uh-huh. And so you had you had your the baby when, when you were about 23? 23. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I just turned 23. My birthday is March 3rd and my son's is March 12th. So I just turned 23 when he was born. Did you get married before or after or as a result of uh, having the baby? As a result of, yeah, we, we got married as a result of having the baby. So after the fact. And, and how long were you married? For two years. For two years. Okay. So was that one of those marriages that kind of as you're walking down the aisle, you kind of feel like maybe this isn't the right thing to do? Or were you 100% behind it all the way? <laughs> I would say that I was 100% behind it all the way, but I was also uh-huh. a very unhealthy person. So... He's not someone that I would choose for myself today. Yeah. And I don't think that we probably would have made it much further than college had I not become pregnant. But I did love him very much and I wanted it to work. Like I was devastated when it didn't. But, you know, we were, it was just a toxic relationship always. Was was he a, a drinker and, and drug user too? Were you partners in crime, so to speak? Absolutely. We were one of the same. So he also was a drinker, a drug user, but mm-hmm. incredibly smart. And that same high functioning addict. Yeah. Again, an- another liability. <laughs> yeah. So you um, did you stop immediately when you found out that you were pregnant uh, using drugs and alcohol? Or was there an interval of time that you came to your senses or did you just know from the beginning that you had to stop once you got pregnant? So I quit drinking immediately after I found out that I was pregnant, but I still continued to smoke marijuana throughout my pregnancy. Not as frequent as I did before, but again, I would just justify it and say that, oh, Mm -hmm. it's more natural. It's helped my stress. Mm -hmm. I'm so stressed out. Um, this won't really mm-hmm. affect the baby. That's that's something that I still feel a lot of shame about because, you know, I I love my son so much and thankfully mm-hmm. he turned out okay. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that. Um, God was really good to us in that. But yeah, that's something that I'm really just not proud of. Yeah, I can imagine that had a, a really tough thing to look at retrospectively. Yeah. So you have this baby, uh, you graduate, and then you, you're married for two years. How old was the baby when you got uh, divorced? He was three. Did you get full, full-time full custody or was it uh, shared custody? Or? No, I didn't. Um, 
we had joint custody, but he was actually the primary parent, which was really hard for me to accept. So whenever we separated, he quit Hmm. using altogether. And um, I guess his attorney Mm -hmm. recommended that he do so, knowing that I wouldn't. And I was served with a court-ordered drug test, Uh which I knew I would fail for for marijuana, cocaine, and alcohol. And the deal was I didn't have to take the drug test if I gave him primary parent or I'd have to take the drug test and then let the fate of the case lie with the courts. So I opted for the plea and gave him Mm. that primary custody, Mm. which was devastating to me as a mother to not have, you know, the primary Mm -hmm. custody of your child. That's pretty, you know, standard. And so uh, I was just devastated by that. That's a devastating situation to be in. Yeah. Again, like smoking the pot while I was pregnant, it was one of those things that I I still just feel so much shame around, even though that's not the case anymore. Yeah, it was it was pretty hard to walk through that. But I coped by drinking more. That's what I was going to ask. How did you get through that period? Yeah. Yeah. By just being like, well, screw him. I'm just going to drink more. And I would say that the time after my divorce, when I started having split custody of my son, Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that my son is the only reason that I'm still alive because whenever I have possession of him, I really, if I used, I would really sort of curtail it. Now I definitely would still Mm -hmm. towards the end of my drinking, I started drinking alone and blacking out more frequently but when he was younger, if I had mm-hmm. possession of him, I would really like try to not drink and be like a, a healthy and sober parent mm. while he was in my possession. But then whenever he would go back to his dad, mm. I would just go wild. And I am convinced that if it weren't for that child, I probably would have died a long time ago. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you had split custody, but it also meant split alcoholism and drug use, didn't it? Exactly. That's so true. And yet again, that was another reason why Uh I would justify it, you know, because again, if well, if I were really an alcoholic, I wouldn't be able to stop. But the thing is, I didn't, I didn't realize that there were different like levels of alcoholism and Mm -hmm. I was a classic binge drinker. So yeah, I could, I could go a few Uh days without drinking, no problem. But if I put one drink into my body, just one sip into my body, then I would not be able to stop until I either ran out and then if I ran out, I would probably drive drunk to go get more. But mm-hmm. more often than not, I would drink until point of blackout. With split custody being the way it is, you must have gotten pretty good at scheduling when you were going to be drinking and blacking out. As, as a high-functioning drunk, you would necessarily have that ability, wouldn't you? I did, yeah. The custody mm-hmm. agreement was kind of weird. It was like he would have this, my son on Monday, Tuesday. Or no, no, no. I would have him on Monday, Tuesday. He would have him on Wednesday, Thursday, and then we would alternate weekends. So it was a it was a really sort of odd agreement, but it gave me this ability to at least every Uh three days or so be able to drink to point a blackout. So every other weekend you could get blitzed and nothing to worry about. Exactly. Were there ever times that you were caring for your son that you did so under the influence or high might have put him in any kind of uh, danger or in a, in a compromised situation? For sure. There were times when 
Like I mentioned, if I ran out of alcohol, I would go get more. There have been times when I've left him home alone to go get more alcohol. When he was how old? Oh, tiny, like toddler elementary school age after he was already asleep. Yeah. There were times that I drove him technically intoxicated because I would drink so late and so much that when I woke up in the morning, I would still be intoxicated and I would drive him places, drive him to school that way. And also whenever I started drinking alone, he was, Mm. he was eight when I got sober. Um, So between that years of like seven and eight, I would drink alone while he was in the house and I would Mm. wait till he would go to sleep. But like, if anything were to have, you know, Mm -hmm. happened in the house, if there would have been a fire or a break-in or just anything really like I couldn't have done anything to care for my child because I would have been too intoxicated. So you you came close to that situation more than once on a somewhat regular basis or was this an, a, an occasional? Um, it was more occasional, but that's still no excuse. You know, it still happened more than it should have. You mentioned earlier when when you had him, you would try not to drink or or use. What was happening while you were trying to not do it? What what lies were you telling yourself that made it okay, even though you had made the commitment to not do it? I would justify my drinking by just telling myself, oh, you work so hard. Look at all these things you do. Look at the kind of mother you are. Mm-hmm. Look at how much you volunteer because again, you know, I was a high functioning yeah. alcoholic, so I would do all of these great things, but those, those great things also were yeah. a barrier to my recovery because it allowed me to justify the use. I get that. So having split custody of your son probably saved him as well as saving you, right? For sure. Do you think you would have, if you had had full-time custody, have you ever stopped to consider what your life might have been like with full-time custody and being an alcoholic? No, I've never thought of that, Howard, but that is such a good point. And I think it just goes to show us that God will do for us what we can't Uh do for ourselves, right? Like, because I think I probably, if I had full custody, and was battling addiction, I probably would have been really resentful of my kid for being around all the time and being in the way. Wow. So the way God had all worked out for you, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Now you've got a, what, a 15-year-old who yeah. made it because because you made it. So he was eight when you got sober. Yeah. Um, can you unpack the intervening years very quickly between when you got out of college, had the baby, and when you stopped drinking? Was Were you working? Uh, were you still functioning okay? Were things getting better or worse? Um, I would say that things were probably pretty stagnant between those years. Um, you know, again, like I would have possession of, of my son, wouldn't really drink. Then he would go to dad's, then I would go wild. And that was just sort of the cycle for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that my drinking like progressed or got worse per se until I was in that custody battle. And once I knew that the courts were looking at me and they like had my number, right? Like they were... (laughs) Mm-hmm. They this this judge who tried my case mm-hmm. was also an LCDC. Um, yeah, so she could sniff out BS with the quickness. She was also a found the founder of Star Drug Court, and so oh, yeah. she was really able to just like take one look at my case and call me out. And I'm so grateful to her. I'm actually friends with her today, which is wild. Uh huh. So once the freedom to choose was taken away from me, it's almost mm-hmm. like it made it like that much more desirable. And I that see. was when I really started drinking home alone a lot because I couldn't put taxi rides or bar tabs on a credit card anymore. Um, so I just started drinking alone all the time. And 
I would say that was when my drinking became the most dangerous because it wasn't even social anymore. It was just me killing a couple of bottles of wine a night, Hmm. you know, sitting on my back porch, chain smoking cigarettes. Like it was really depressing when I look back on that time. Yeah. It sounds like a really lonely existence too. Yeah, it was. It was very lonely. Hmm. Hmm. Where was your family of origin during all of this? And do you have siblings that uh, were involved in your life along the way or what, what were those relations like? Um, so during that time, my mom lives in Austin, um, and my dad does live in Houston. Uh huh. And then I have two brothers, um, that are closer in age to me. I'm the oldest. Uh Um, and then I have a sister who is 17 years younger than me. And so, you know, they were around somewhat, but I think that I've always been the big sister, the like overachieving big sister. And Mm -hmm. even when I would, you know, get really intoxicated or act crazy, I don't, they've never talked to me about if they thought I had a problem or not, Mm -hmm. but they've expressed gratitude for my recovery. So that kind of leads me to believe that my alcoholism did affect them. I mean, it had to have because I would just get so sloppy and to watch someone that you look up to get that way has to be disheartening at best. I would imagine. Yeah. It's also confusing because sure. They're the ones that you're looking for, for guide uh, to, for guidance. And when you don't get it, it's really tough. I asked about the family because, you know, sometimes families can be supportive. Sometimes they can be really judgmental. Sometimes, in my case, I just never let them know what was going on. I mean, it was so much easier to manage my family. I had one I had one sister who I used to use and drink with, but everybody else in the family, nobody knew what I was doing. And mm-hmm. I liked it. I liked it better that way. Were you in the same kind of situation? Um, no, they were concerned about it. They were. Okay, good. They were, but like they, but they didn't really, um, express that concern to me. I think they all kind of talked about, talked about it behind my back. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it. So they didn't have to do an intervention on you. The court did when you got that third DWI. Well, I only got the one DWI, but it was my third arrest. Oh, your your third arrest. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But that was when I was 20. So, but the court case that really like changed things for me was my custody case. When I, when um, the judge threatened to take custody of my son away altogether and put him into foster care. Can I presume that that means that your husband wasn't doing any better than you were at that time with his drinking and drug use? Yeah, that's true. Hmm. That's sad. Yeah. But today we're both sober, which is beautiful. How do you guys get along? We get along great. Yeah. Um, I would say that we truly co-parent our son today. Uh-huh. And it's it's been a long journey, though. Like, it's taken yeah. a really long time to get to a point where we get along great because there yeah. was just, there was so much bad blood. We, we hurt one another so deeply. Both of yeah. us were just, we were just terrible to one another. But that's the beautiful thing about recovery. You know, the 12 steps teach us how to mend relationships and clean up our side of the street Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. clear away resentments. And so Mm -hmm. because we both work a 12 step program, we've been able to make amends to one another and move forward in the best interest of our child, which is just so amazing. So yeah, we get along really well. If that's not a blessing and absolute evidence (laughs) of God working in two people's lives, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. When you came into AA, um, what were your expectations? Uh, did you uh, have expectations about how long you would have to be there or wh- where you would have to get to be able to maybe not have to do it anymore? What were your what were your thoughts and expectations when you first went into AA? I think that by the time I came in on my own accord, uh-huh. I was so miserable that I was willing to do whatever it took. Uh-huh. And I've just always sort of taken it a day at a time. I really have never thought, okay, well, I can never drink again. Mm -hmm. Um, I pray that I don't, you know, like I, I do the work so that I don't, but Mm -hmm. 
I've just seen it happen too many times where like someone that, you know, is like really popular in the rooms, Mm -hmm. they have double digit sobriety and then they go out and you're just like, what the hell just happened? Like it's shocking, but it, it happens all the time. And so I know that I'm never like cured of this thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like this is something that I will have to continually work at. It's a chronic disease. Like it's something that I will always have to maintain um, if I want to maintain my sobriety. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, to think that way can be pretty overwhelming. So I just take it a day at a time, you know, the way the big book tells us to do that makes it more manageable for me. Sounds like you were led in the right directions early on. If you have that attitude and have had that frame of mind all along, then that speaks very positively towards what kind of sponsor you had and what kind of meetings you were going to early on. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your sponsor and how you you met her and how she helped you work the steps? So there's a woman that I call my forever sponsor. She's not currently my sponsor, but she will be forever my sponsor. You know, Uh she's, she's the one who took me through the steps. She was my sponsor for four years she just celebrated 37 years of sobriety. Wow. Yeah. So she's like, she's done the deal, you know, Uh Um, we have a beautiful relationship and still grab lunch on occasion, but Uh yeah, she just, she took me through and she taught me how to do these steps and, and live my life according to them. Uh Um, I also, when in early sobriety, I did I did 90 and 90, 90 Uh meetings in 90 days. And that was incredibly helpful because it really taught me how to, I I think that there are healthy and unhealthy meetings. That's just Mm -hmm. a personal belief of mine. And so because I was going to so many meetings, I really got Mm -hmm. introduced to some great meetings in the city of Houston. And now I kind of, I I choose quality over quantity, you know, I figured out what I love and Mm -hmm. uh, what's going to speak best to me. Mm -hmm. And so those are the meetings that I go to today, but, you know, primarily I attend women's meetings. I just really like them with the exception of the meeting that I know you from. That's, Uh that's really the only mixed meeting that I attend today. Well, I'm I'm glad you do because I I might not know you otherwise, but I'll ask you the same question. I've asked a lot of men on the program. And of course, I know a lot more men because I go to a lot of men's meetings. But what is there different in a woman's meeting than in a mixed meeting that is so important? Well, for me, I feel like I can share much more openly and authentically mm-hmm. in a women's meeting. As much as I hate to admit it, I'll uh-huh. just go ahead and admit it. Um, when in the presence of men, I just find myself to feel as though I have to kind of be like putting on a show or something like, like I don't want to say the wrong thing or Mm -hmm. um, embarrass myself in any way. Whereas with women, I just feel so comfortable with them. I'll say Mm -hmm. anything. Um, That's part of it. But then another huge part of it is that I don't feel comfortable talking about romantic relationships in a mixed meeting because I never want to send out a signal to someone that, Hey, I'm having trouble with my boyfriend. So come holler at me after the meeting. Like I've done a pretty good job. I feel of keeping my romantic relationships and my program separate. Uh And I love that because I never have to worry about, bumping into an ex at a meeting or, you know, because of that, which (laughs) can happen. But like, I just would never want that to impede on my sobriety. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is those are the exact same reasons why men need to go to men's meetings for those very reasons. Sure. The only difference I would say is in the romantic thing. uh, Women in a mixed meeting talking about romance may send out the wrong signal to men in the room, but men talking about difficulty with romance and relationship 
you know, sends out the vibe of, you know, I'm a loser or something like that. So <laughs> to the <Yeah>. women. <laughs> so I always suggest that, especially to my sponsees and to men over the years, I'm always telling people about good meetings. But I think a mix, a mixture of meetings, you know, I, I tell my guys I sponsor mostly men's meetings, but throw in a few mixed meetings here and there and it makes, yeah. makes all the difference in the world. So um, when it comes to sponsorship, what has your experience been with that and, and being of service? Um, I've sponsored some women over the years Mm -hmm. and currently I just work with one woman, but she is, she just celebrated seven years of sobriety too. Um, she doesn't need my guidance as much as, uh, she used to, I would say, Uh but we have a beautiful relationship. I adore her and her children so much and sponsorship creates a bond that is unlike any friendship I've ever experienced. Yeah. And it's all very nicely structured for us within the confines of the program and with the within the lines of the program. I think AA obviously is great for helping us stay sober, but it's also great for teaching us how to relate to uh, to other people. During the past seven years that you've been sober, can you think of any particular times when you looked at the situation and said, if I wasn't an AA, I would have not been able to handle the situation? Absolutely. Um so my depression has really kicked up in recovery. And I think mm-hmm. I think that my depression has always been there. Mm. But I would use substances to change the way that I feel. And so it really kind of masked it. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to finally, I, I pray, get kind of mm-hmm. a grip on my depression. And mm-hmm. I work with a psychiatrist and a therapist mm-hmm. and, um, take some medications that help, you know, manage that brain chemistry so that I can be the best version of myself. Right. Mm -hmm. I know that if I would be drinking that I wouldn't be able to properly diagnose and manage that because alcohol, there are side effects when you drink with antidepressants. (laughs) So that's something that, you know, I definitely am so grateful to be sober and, you know, being sober has allowed, it's like, um, it's like a palate cleanser, if you will, for mental illness, <laughs> because, you know, it's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, you have to actually feel things for the first time. And then you work through these 12 steps mm-hmm. and stuff comes up that is painful Um, but we have to deal with it. We have to learn how to deal with it because if we don't, we'll drink again. Right. We've got a spiritual toolkit to work with and we've got the practical experience as well as access to other people who have the experience, even if we don't. I mean, early on in the program, I wondered, could I stay sober through this horrible catastrophic thing? Fortunately, I didn't have any of that occur until I had been in enough meetings to see people get through the catastrophic, horrible things and not drink. So that taught me how to do that. But yeah. when you talked about the depression, I too suffer. Uh, I suffer from clinical depression and have for a very, very long time. I never drank and used antidepressants because I didn't start getting medication for it and wasn't really diagnosed for it until I had already stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. But you know, when I stopped drinking, I thought my life was going to get so, so much better. But I neglected the fact that was later diagnosed that I had clinical depression. And my clinical depression told me, big deal, you're sober. So what? You know, (laughs) that doesn't mean anything. Why don't you? And and it it oftentimes would conspire with my alcoholism. But I've matured in that in that sense. And the medications have been absolutely critical. The relationship with good psychiatrists and therapists have been absolutely essential. The other thing, uh, Sarah, that, that I try and do whenever possible is what you just did. And that is to share with others about that because there's still, it's still incredibly stigmatized for for as much as we don't like being stigmatized, you know, stigmatized for being alcoholics. Oftentimes in AA meetings, when I was new, I'd say, uh, I've got the doctor diagnosed me with depression and he gave me these, these medications and people say, oh no, oh no, you you better not take those pills. Uh, yeah. You know, all, all you need to do is uh, hum a happy song or make a gratitude list or pray three times as much and, and work with others. And you do all that stuff and it still doesn't work, but that's not the solution for clinical depression. There's a molecule missing. There's something that's not connecting. 
right? Right. Yeah. It's, there's something off in your brain chemistry that needs to be, that needs to be addressed that, you know, prayer can certainly help, but it's not the, it's not the complete answer. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are treating your depression along with staying really, really active in the program. I have known people who started treating their depression and felt like, well, they didn't need AA anymore. Uh, for me, I started treating it and it just opened up all kinds of new doors to why I needed AA too. So yeah, sounds like you're in the same boat. Um, I am. Be before we wrap this up, I wanted to ask, in, in looking back over the, the years that you've been sober now, seven years is a long time, uh, in addition to the gift of what you just mentioned, uh, has there been anything else that kind of stands out during that time that you're just super glad that AA was there for you? W were you ever taken up to the edge of the ledge? Uh, were you ever pulled out from the center of the herd? And what, what did that, what did that look like? Um, no, not really. Like I've, I've tried to stay more in the center of the herd during COVID. Uh -huh. I definitely started slacking because I just didn't care for the zoom meetings. So my attendance meeting got my attendance to meetings did become pretty dicey. Uh, but now that we're back in person, I'm back to my regular meetings, which feels really great. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that probably what I'm most grateful for is just the relationship that it's given me and my son. Um, we are very, very close mm. and he's watched me grow up in a lot of ways and he has a sober mom and now he's at an age where, you know, he may start being interested in trying some things out and I get to navigate that world with him as a sober woman versus uh -huh. a woman who, you know, if I were still using, honestly, I probably would just end up using with him, you know, that cycle would continue. And I'm so grateful that, uh, that he gets to have two sober parents today. Like what a miracle. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that really is. So when did you first sit down and have the talk with him about alcohol and drugs and maybe your own experience? Oh, when he was eight. When he was eight? Yeah. Yeah. I talked about it in a kid appropriate way. Uh, we actually went through something called kids camp. So it's um, kids camp is a program for children with addicted loved ones. And they set it up as like a three day camp. So it's like super fun, but they're learning about um, their emotions and how addiction affects them personally and mm -hmm. how it's not their fault. Their parents addiction doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but that it's, it's a disease that they have. And they word it in ways that's like really easy for kids to understand. Um, it's a really, really beautiful program. He might've been 10 actually when we went through kids camp, but yeah, I've been honest with him from the start um, wow. about my recovery. I, that's what I felt was the appropriate thing to do. You can never go wrong being truthful with your kids. I had the same kind of discussion with mine as well. This has been a, a fantastic opportunity to get to know you so much better. You're a beautiful Thank person. You. And I love you. And I'm glad that you did this today because there are a lot of people who needed to hear your messages about staying sober and about coping with divorce and raising a child and all of these things. We hear about them in rooms, but when we're giving them a chance to share in most meetings, the best we can do is give a little two-minute or three-minute blurb. And unless we connect with them after the meeting, sometimes that's all they know. But I think when they listen to this podcast, they'll get the picture of a woman who has uh, risen from what would have been certain ruin to a, a position. You look really happy. And, and, you know, they always say, if you're happy, tell your face. So you, you must be informing your face all the time because you've got <laughs> that big, wide smile on your face yeah. right now. I live a good life. Thanks to recovery. Thanks again, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Howard. See you later. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Sarah B. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to as many people as you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. 
If you leave a multi-star review wherever you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily, too. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. You can ask Siri, Google, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>